the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Stop doing these behaviors if you want better relationships. And later, we've got some good news to share with you. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson, always joined by my lovely co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. You're welcome. Anytime. And uh, if you've missed any of our show, we love inviting you to go back and catching, catching up, catch upping, catch up on our catch podcast. Up. Do there some catch go. up, eat some catch up and catch up on our <laughs> podcast. We also love engaging with you on social media. We are at Common Good Talk on the old Facebook where we love connecting with you. Uh, Brian, do you remember we had a guest on a while ago, Dr. Caroline Leaf, therapist? Yes. I think she had a British accent. So we were like... Probably not listening to what she had to say, more <laughs> listening to her voice more than anything. I do. I, now that you said the British accent, I do recall. Yeah. So she's a great follow on Instagram, by the way. Every Friday she does like, I don't know what they're called. Let's say fun Friday. And she just puts hilarious jokes or like funny memes or tweets she's found throughout the week or her team has found. They're very entertaining. But more than that, she's a good follow because she talks a lot about mental health and mm. better relationships. And she recently posted something that I thought was so interesting, Brian. Five tips, things to stop doing if you want better relationships and better mental health. Okay. So, hey, here's what I'm trying to decide. Should I go one at a time for us or should I read them all and then we'll unpack them? What's your gut say on this Thursday evening? My Ryan? gut says go, go give us all five. Okay. And then we'll and go back. Then we will go back and we will, like we will highlight the ones that stood out to us. All right. I like it. Okay. Here's the first one. Okay. Five things to stop doing if you want better relationships and better mental health. One, stop expecting others to read your mind or always know what you want. Two, stop expecting people to fit your idea of who they are. Three, stop expecting the different results from the same behaviors. Four, stop expecting others to heal the way you healed. Five, stop expecting others to respect boundaries if you never vocalize them. I feel like we could talk for 30 minutes on each one of those things. Was there any outstanding for you as far as like in your relationship or your own mental health? Yeah. So the, the one that stood out to me of that list that you gave... Read exactly. It was number one. Read exactly how number one read. Yes. Stop expecting others to read your mind or always know what you want. Yeah. That's the story of my marriage at times. Uh, That's a lot of people's marriage right there. (laughs) Where you go. Here's what happens to us. We've been thinking something so long or we've been Mm -hmm. or we think we're communicating. Mm -hmm. But really, like in a marriage, what it really is, is. Uh, I'm frustrated and Carrie should know it. 
A hundred percent. She should know not only that I'm frustrated, why I'm frustrated, and then I get more frustrated, and then I finally come to her, and she's like, I didn't even know you were frustrated. Like, right, why like didn't you I, tell what, me? I had no idea this whole inner world was happening, and you never even said anything. Yeah. And I'm like, the reason I didn't tell you is because you should have already you known. Have, and, you ought to know. Uh, but we... Uh, we do that all the time with not just our spouses. I think our spouses are our biggest ones, right? But we do that in our jobs. Like, uh, you know, if I'm leading somebody, it's like, you should know to do this. Mm, well, you never yeah. told me to do that. Right. Well, read my mind. <laughs> it's so true. Even like positively, I was thinking about this because uh, as we've been kind of joking, my birthday's coming up. So my it husband is? inevitably asks me, what do you want for your birthday? Mm-hmm. And even that, I'm a little like... You should know what I want for my birthday. We've been married for 20 years. Like, you shouldn't have to ask me. And so I do feel like that's true definitely in marriage. But you're right. It's also true in other relationships where you assume you've either communicated or given enough, like, body language Mm -hmm. or skills that they should... um, uh, they should skills. know. They should know. They should, they know. should know. They should be able to read your mind. So yes. but don't do that. The healthy person, the healthy relationship actually says, hey, here's what's on my mind. Here's what my expectation is. All right. Let me tell you the one that really stood out for me. Um, expecting that I'm and you might have to help me unpack this one, Brian, expecting others to heal the way you healed. Hmm. That one's interesting, especially coming from a therapist, because you sort of have this idea that there's a way towards healing and wholeness, and these are the steps. But she, a very famous mental health professional, is saying somebody's healing journey may look different than your healing journey, and that's okay. So I think of people who have shared stories of of terrible loss, of you yeah. know loss of a loved one, loss of a a parent or, you know, I, I think of when you hear stories of t- a husband and wife who lose a child mm-hmm. and a lot of times what you end up hearing is um, what what ends up tearing them apart or whatever else it might be is that that one of them seems to be just immersed in grief, mm. just dying, and the yeah. other one seems to want to move on. Or right. the other one seems to be grieving by saying, I just need to work, 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 yeah. or whatever else it might be. That's an extreme example, but that's what it makes me think, because mm-hmm. that's, think that's good. when you project on the people close to you, you're going to work this out the same way I do. Then yeah. I, I do think... Uh, it's adding a layer that's unfair to them, but then also adds yeah. to your anger and your frustration. Right. That's so true. Okay. This second one I think is so powerful. It reminds me of an old Ted Lasso episode. Number two, stop expecting people to fit your idea of who they are. Hmm. I remember this Ted Lasso episode. It was all about dads, I think from season two. And, uh, What's his name? Who's kind of like the bumbling, funny little like accountant guy. I, I don't know. He's a great character. I can't think of his name. So, wow. Really memorable. But he, <laughs> he Leslie, I know is his first name. Uh, he said something about maybe you should try kind of releasing your dad from who you think he should be. And instead mm. embracing him for who he is. I think that's that same idea. Like if we this happens a lot, I think, with siblings and like, um, family relationships where we assume kids, sisters, brothers, moms, dads 
are supposed to be a certain way. We that's get right. frustrated when they're not instead of appreciating who they are. I think that's the that's what causes a lot of conflict, I think, in families. A hundred percent. When we, you know, kind of what's over all of these is when you place an expectation on others to do things the way you think they should do it, it's only going to heap. It's going to drive a wedge between you and that person. Yeah. And it's going to heap frustration upon you. Like now I'm struggling with situation X and I'm struggling with the way the other person is dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And it's just not fair like that. I can see why a mental health uh, person would be like, hey, here's the things you need to stop doing because it's just going to tear you apart. Yeah. Yeah. That that one is is really kind of convicting. All right. This let's unpack this last one. Number five. Stop expecting others to respect boundaries if you never vocalize them. I think I'm guilty of that. I think I'm guilty of like, how dare they do that? That offends my boundaries. That steps over my boundaries. And yet I've never had a boundary conversation with that person, (laughs) ever. It's like saying, here's the boundary line that I never want anyone to cross in my yard, but never putting up a fence or never actually putting up <laughs> yeah, a flag that says, right. here's the boundary Don't line. Don't cross and this line. Yeah. How would you ever know that it's actually about? That's a good one. Like, we do Kinda do goes that. Back like, how to that, like, dare they do that? And how then all dare of a sudden they like, do that? How dare they, you know, whatever it is, you could fit, but you've never said, oh, that actually offends me. And like, it kind of goes back to the mind reading thing. Like, we assume people have the same boundaries as us. And they can read our minds about it and they just don't. And so, you know, that's a good, that's a good thing to remember. A lot of this comes down to communication. Don't you think? A hundred percent. If you want better mental health, if you want better relationships, communicate. All right. Mm. Well, that's a helpful, helpful word from Dr. Caroline Leaf. Coming up next, Brian, we have another list of sorts. Tom Rainer's done some research on why churches are dying. We're going to talk about Mm. if we think churches are dying. And if so, what leads to that? When we come back, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. And one of the things we like to talk, we like to shoot to all fields, hit to all fields here at the common good. We talk about, you know, relationships. We talk about marriage. We talk about like goofy, funny things that happen. We vent about shallow things. We also love talking about the church and the state Mm -hmm. of the church because Brian and I believe deeply in the local church and we want you to get yourself into a church community. Um, But, you know, there's been a lot on this kind of thread about churches dying, especially the post-COVID church dying, falling apart, dying. And I think you could think about churches dying spiritually. You could think about churches dying like literally they just close the doors and they're no longer a community that meets anymore. Or just in general, this idea of less and less people being a part of a church. Do you think it's fair to say the church is dying Brian? I don't think so. I think, first of all, we start with that biblically, right? We say that um, Jesus himself said that that the church will never be uh, be defeated. Like he is building his church and upon his church, uh, the gates of hell will never destroy. So I don't think we need to worry about the church dying. What we may need to worry about is, are we doing so for lack of a better way, are we doing church correctly? Mm. Is the way we're doing church yeah. dying? Does it need yeah. to be reformed or rethought? But 
I don't think we need to worry that we're a generation away from the church being gone. Like that's yeah. never going to happen. Yeah. It might look different. Yes. Um, but it's not it's not like we're going to go. Hmm, today was the day it was defeated. So, uh, right. yeah, I don't think it's dying. I think that's a really good perspective. And that helps us lead into our next conversation. Tom Rayner, who's a researcher and author, he has uh, done some research on the American church and why churches are dying. So I think let's let's assume categorically God says, Jesus himself said, like, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Church Mm -hmm. won't die. But for churches that are dying or maybe are sick and on their way to dying, and that might even be spiritual death, like they are just asleep spiritually. These are some of the signs. Uh, The first is that they refuse to admit that they're sick. Mm. And I think we've seen this one, Brian, in some of the, like, toxic leaders where their stories have come out. And you found out the whole time they were like jerks, abusers, Mm -hmm. stealers, you know, put your, you know, so many categories and descriptors, which is upsetting. But I think, you know, those churches do tend to die or at least is a long, slow rebuild. And part of it is they just didn't admit like their leadership was sick. I think that is very true. And the the biggest one that we saw of that was when we watched the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, the fact that that church died within a month of Driscoll leaving, there right. was wow. obviously, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty. there seemed to have been warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. You are right. This is one of the dangers of the celebrity culture, the, uh, the pastor being bigger than the church, uh, yeah. because when that pastor or that celebrity falls, uh, what does the church have to stand on? Mm. How do they continue? And we see this a lot uh, with churches closing, but we also see this with churches just, kind of becoming wayward. Like, what do we do? Like, right. Yeah. Some of the biggest churches from a decade ago who, uh, whose famous pastors have fallen, you read about them now and they're just kind of there. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of trying to figure out, like, mm-hmm. it still feels like they're on the PTSD of like, yeah. we're still not, we still have no idea who we are. So they exist kind of in name. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think the danger of the celebrity pastor is, is it. And that one, too about admitting that they're sick in general yeah um that's hard I, like none of us want to look at our church and go our church yeah, isn't well or, yeah or we need to close right? I, that's why i have such um i have such admiration for churches that go you know what we are going to hand this thing off to a church that could revitalize it yeah yeah connect with the younger people in our neighborhood Mm -hmm. that could connect with the community Mm -hmm. the people who get to that point where they say now's the time for us to make that move you read all sorts of stories of that and it's it's always so impressive to me the humility of that yeah it tends to be older generation handing it off to the younger right but the the humility of that going hey we think that the that the um that the mission of the gospel, the, the kingdom of God moving forward in our community is bigger than our particular church existing. And therefore, we want to do something different with this building or this structure or whatever. I've always found that to be so encouraging and so inspiring. Yeah. And it's so like kingdom minded, right? Because you're thinking more about what's best for like the church at large than mm-hmm. you are thinking about kind of your own agenda. Brian, here's another reason why churches are dying. And I think this will hit home for both you and me. Churches are waiting on a magic bullet pastor. <laughs> what do you think that they, Tom Rainer means by that? If we just get that dynamic person, yeah. if yeah. we just get that author, if we just get yeah. that national speaker, if we just yeah. get uh, 
and, and you it's what we said before, Aubrey. We put everything on the good way on the pastor, but we also do the bad way. Like, oh, well, totally. it's just the pastor's fault. Yeah. If we just replace it. But we see what happens. Churches that are in a, again, lack of a better phrase, a death spiral, mm-hmm. the removal of the pastor often becomes an important step, but it's never the magic bullet. It, it yeah. doesn't do it. And generally that church will continue to shrink and then they'll blame that pastor and they'll move on to the next one. That, that is a good one. Cause that one's really hard. I think the hard thing about that, Kevin actually talked about this. I mean, there is a sense when like the pastor should no longer be the pastor, but Kevin will talk about how just by nature of being a pastor, let's say he meets somebody random stranger on an airplane. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Mm-hmm. Like people are either automatically excited for you or like hate you. And that can be true even for churchgoers too. Like they're either for or against their pastor. And part of it is like, I don't know why, but the pastor sort of represents parents and boss and person from the past and old church experience. Like the pastor isn't just sort of this neutral character person and no leader really is. Let's be honest. I think it's naive to think a leader would be. But part of that then is if you're constantly expecting this quote unquote magic bullet pastor, who's going to come in with all the charisma and all the skills and all the gifts, like it's, it's a lot of pressure to put on one fallible human being. Um, and like you said, it's not going to actually save the church. Like mm-hmm. there's no, there's always going to be a better pastor probably and a pastor with different gifts. So that's interesting to think about. Like churches might die because they're waiting on that magic bullet pastor. Yep. yep. Um, it is hard. Yeah. Let's, let's look at, let's look at one more, Brian, uh, churches that aren't willing to change at all. Those churches are dying. Hmm. I wonder if that's about leadership changing, if that's about model, if that's about uh, efforts. That feels model. That feels. There's a really fine line on that one here, because on the one hand, churches get stuck in the this is how we always did it. This is Mm -hmm. how we always did it. This is how we always did it. And you're like, well, that's not working. Yeah. The, the, The flip side danger of this is there are some things we don't change. Well, Mm. we're theologically too conservative. Uh, we still believe that theology, but we need to change it in because mm. of our culture. Yeah. Or wow. We're too theological or whatever. Like there are certain things that you don't change, but this could get down to things like music style. Do we revisit that? But also programming and just becoming creative, right? When you start a church, you kind of everything's on the board. How do we reach the community? Yep. What do we do? Yep. And churches do, even new churches, you get into these ruts of like, I don't know, we do this at Christmas, we do this at Easter, we do this for kids in the summer, and we do, and you just start getting into this rut and you go, well, and if somebody asked you, why do you do it? You go, it's because that's what we've always done. And, yeah. and so I do think churches need to be willing to go, Let's rethink. Let's mm-hmm. so the old Rick Warren thing. He used to say, I picture myself replanting my church every one to three years. Yeah, you know? I think there's some in in fact, a part of my part of my degree, my master's degree is in leadership. And there's a theory in change leadership that that leaders should be constantly making micro changes in the organization, including the church, like that Rick Warren replanting every year so that change becomes just a part of the culture. Mm. And so you can kind of change and shift with the times without it always being this whole dramatic thing and nobody gets stuck in their way. And anyway, so interesting to think about. We'll have to come back to this conversation at some point and talk about what makes the church 
alive and what makes the church, uh, you know, stand the test of time. I think that'd be interesting to talk about, too. Well, coming up next, Brian, we got more questions to ask. Twelve questions every long term couple should ask. I want to know what you think it is when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Brian, today's kind of fun. I feel like we're doing like a day of interesting lists where we're learning about things, little listicles. And we're going to talk about, we're going to create a list of um, like a marriage audit. Okay. So if you're married or you've been in a long-term relationship, what are some questions you should be asking to audit the health of your relationship? Um, Do you, okay. We do have some research in front of us, but before we look at that, anything come to mind for you? Like, is there anything you and Carrie kind of come back to and go, okay, where are we? How are we doing in this area? Yeah, I've mentioned this one before. I think uh, laughter is a huge one. Like, do we still laugh with mm, each other? Wow. Like, or is it all just about we have to get the kids here? We have to clean the dishes yeah. here. We've got to do this and this and this and this. And, hey, let's talk budget. Hey, let's talk vacation. Hey, let's talk, talk, talk. Marriage can get really overwhelming with all of those questions. And the question is, um, you know, not all the time, but are there moments every day that we're laughing together where we're reminding yeah, ourselves, like, oh, wow. we really like each other. Wow. Carrie and I have also had this, and this is not, you know, anything unique to us, but uh, throughout our marriage, there have been times, the, the phrase that we will often use when we know that we're not in a great spot and that something needs to be done is when we say to one another, I feel like we're just roommates. Like, it feels like we're just living in the same house. Yeah. You're doing your job. I'm doing my job. Yeah. We're worried primarily about the kids and everything else. And we, yeah. I don't remember the last time that we mm. interacted, went out on a date, acted like married couple versus like, mm. okay, hey, you got, you picking that kid up today. I'll go get that one. Yeah. Uh, hey, did you buy this? Hey, did you? And those things are important. Like, that's the day-to-day nature of marriage. You have to, you got responsibilities you got to do. But if all it is is about that then that's not why you got married and so we'll often ask each other or not ask each other we'll say to one another yeah you're just kind of like a roommate to me right now and that's code word for let's go on a date or let's make some adjustments let's do something so what about you and kevin when do you know what what's kind of the questions or the things you say to each other yeah it's funny because kevin's been sick all week and so i feel like we're a little bit in a like like that it's just literally a week long but i can tell we both feel disconnected from each other because Mm -hmm. we've just now he's feeling better now so he's getting caught up on all of the work he missed from while he was sick and so we're just kind of like going through the motions of our life right now barely even talking and i do think we we have to go have we spent any time together do we still like each other like and it's sort of that same idea and and i know i've heard some people kind of scoff at like the date night concept like Mm -hmm. a date night what's that going to do for your marriage but i think what a regular date night does it may not bring like deep healing to real intense conflict but it does bring back fun and it does remind you oh yeah we like each other outside of doing the dishes and making sure the kids are going from one place to another we 
still enjoy each other's company. And so anyway, all that to say the date night for us is kind of like, wait, we haven't gone on a date in a while. We got to like get back into our habit of enjoying one another's company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, let's look, Brian, with that in mind, let's look at some of the research out there. Actually, laughter is on here. When's the last time you laughed? Nice. And what did you laugh about? That's a question you can ask. Do you kiss to say hello or goodbye? This is interesting. Here's what the research said. This is over at the placeretreats.com. Is there always a goodbye kiss or do you barely look up as they slam out of the house? <laughs> and what about your hellos? A perfunctory hi. Think about how friends interact. They never leave or arrive without exchanging a kiss or a respectful attention. I would say friends more like give you a big hug. I don't mm-hmm. kiss a lot of my friends, but <laughs> this is especially important when you're upset with each other because how you react on meeting and parting provides a little reset. Even if sometimes you feel like growling instead of kissing, that four second show of dedication matters. You know what's interesting about that? My my friend Jen, who passed away, she was committed. Like one of her very intentional things in marriage was when her husband came home from work, she would give him a big old kiss. And she was like, even if I didn't want to, even if I like didn't feel like it, I just would welcome my husband with like just a big kiss because I just wanted him to feel loved and like let him know like I'm your girl. You're my guy. We, you know, and I always thought that was so sweet. I haven't yeah. taken that on, but I thought that was so sweet. <laughs> your husband's sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's sick. That's why. That's why. I think this is a great one. I think yeah. w- going back to what I said before, when, when I feel like Carrie and I are distant, when I feel yeah. like I'm not, it's never like I think to myself, I'm not going to kiss her goodbye, right. but I do find, but I do find myself not doing it. Yeah, uh, totally. Another one is like when you go to bed, Hey, good night. Do you yep. give them a kiss? And then right. just like, and a lot of times those are, when I read this, I'm like, that's true. These I do kind of correspond. And sometimes I know. if you feel distant, you might be like, well, once we're connected, I'll kiss. It, it might right. be the reverse. Like, right. The the just kissing your spouse goodbye or hello mm-hmm. could be the doorway to changing more, the direction that you're totally going. yeah and even even let's say kissing is too much even like looking up and acknowledging that they've walked in the door when they're home I think that's massive like sometimes especially even my kids they'll be busy doing homework or video games I'll be like guys your mom walked in the room look up say hello mm-hmm. acknowledge that i'm a human and i think for spouses we need to do that for one another too no doubt okay another marriage audit question is how much of your communication is about logistics so obviously that's a part of the reality i think of marriage admin and schedules <laughs> but how about having a deeper chat about something you care about or something mm-hmm. you're into something i don't know just finding ways that create conditions to facilitate more intimate conversation I remember, um, I'm about to do something we have not done in a long time. Ready? What's that? Yeah. I am going to say a compliment to Mark Driscoll. Okay. Wow. Uh, I remember because Lord knows we spend enough time critiquing yeah. him and saying yeah. legitimately bad things. Yeah. I remember hearing him a sermon or whatever a long time ago. And it actually takes on a little more context once you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. But I do remember him saying that him and his wife had a specific date time, like a date night. Mm -hmm. But each week they also had a very specific on your calendar hour that was almost like a marital staff meeting where they said they went over their calendar. They went and that was when they discussed budget. That was when they discussed the kids schedules. And I remember uh, we don't do that very well, but I remember thinking that's smart Mm -hmm. because it gets those things out of the way, mm-hmm. but it also makes sure they get talked about. Like it's not, and like, then you don't talk about them on your date. 
because right. you have your calendar. Kevin and I used to call it a calendar meeting. We haven't done it in a couple of years, but we'd like every Monday morning calendar meeting. And then Tuesday night was date night and we didn't talk calendar stuff because we'd already taken care of it. Yeah, yeah. And so we've never really done it, but it is interesting to think about like, is there a time and place? Because what ends up happening is like, let's say I want to talk about the budget. I don't want to bring it up at specific times. And then we end up not talking about it. Yeah. And now you right. start dealing with other issues instead of right. like, you know what? At Monday at six, maybe Carrie doesn't want to talk about the budget, but she knows Monday at six, we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And it gets it out of the way, mm-hmm. gets you on the same page, and then you can go and be, you know, go about your time not talking the, about logistics. The nice thing about that, too, is let's say it is something like the budget, which could create some stress or conflict. Then you're not coming at it all wound up and when you're angry and when someone spent too much money. It's like, oh, no, we that's our six o'clock on Monday talk. That's I'll right. hold on to it until then. And not that you're holding it on in bitterness, but you're sort of calming yourself down. You're preparing rather than it being sort of an in the moment reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few more a uh, few more of these audit questions. Let me just read them. Is your routine too predictable? Are you having fun? Do you still hold hands? Are you learning new things about your partner? Do you still make an effort? I think that's a huge one. Uh, do Does the prospect of an empty nest terrify you? Do you share any interest? And do you complain mm. to friends about your partners? I think that's a really convicting one. And are there things you never talk about? Maybe pay attention to those things. Audit your own marriage and see where you might be able to grow today. All right, Brian, coming up next, we're going to end the show with some very good news. We'll do that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It is the end of the show on Thursday evening. And one of the things we like to do at the end of every show is just share some good news with you. We like to go to a place called The Week where they aggregate good news stories from around the world. I'm going to share the first one. Okay. Man, it's so funny about this. This is about a bakery owner. And I've been telling Kevin that I like... I don't know that there's a really good bakery around me and I want to go to a bakery and I want to see a lot of choices of not just cupcakes, but cake slices. And I just want like a good old, I just want to order a slice of cake, but not just a portillas. Like I want options. So this is about, I don't know why I'm telling you that, except this is about a bakery. Wait, West Chicago, right over there by the hospital, right at Winfield and is that High Lake or something right there? Isn't there an awesome like a cupcake place there? Am I wrong about this? Did it move? You might be right, and I don't know about it. I got to look that up. It might have moved, but Uh right there by the hospital. You know there's that pizza place, Caliendo's, right there? I think right there. There might be a cupcake place there for you. I could be wrong, but you should go check it out. I need to find find out, and I need to know if they have actual cake, because what I'm looking for is slices of cake. All right, well, a bakery owner finds the recipe for success is her open-door hiring policy. Janie's life-changing baked goods is known for its pie crust cookies. Okay, that sounds amazing, by the way. (laughs) And giving employees a second chance. Owner Janie Deegan discovered a love of baking when she was 25 and recovering from addiction. When I was getting sober, I found that my life was so out of control, she told CBS News. Baking was a beautiful, meditative, very controlled artistic outlet for me. When she decided to open a bakery in Manhattan, Deegan wanted to give others an opportunity to start over as well, so she has an open-door hiring policy. 
Meaning, if someone is ready, willing, able, and enthusiastic about coming to work, we're not going to look at your past situations or gaps on your resume or if you're homeless or been in prison. The person you show up to the interview as is the person we're hiring for. This has been a recipe for success. She now has two bakeries and 15 employees. Mm. Love that. AI software shows promising results in detecting breast cancer missed by doctors. Whoa. In Hungary, early testing results show that artificial intelligence has a, quote, impressive ability to detect signs of breast cancer missed by doctors, the New York Times reports. Uh, Kieran Medical Technologies feeds its AI systems millions of mammograms from patients whose diagnoses are unknown, as well as images labeled by radiologists to teach the AI to detect cancerous growths by their shapes, locations, and mm. density. By then, creating a mathematical representation of normal mammograms and those with cancers, the system compares that baseline to spot abnormalities in mammograms. Wow. In 2002, after testing more than uh, 275,000 breast cancer cases, they said its AI technology can spot cancer at least as well as doctors as the second reader of scans. Wow. Additional testing at a clinic in Hungary found that the AI software was able to identify more malignancies, increasing the cancer detection by 13%. Wow. The technology is meant to be used alongside doctors and more clinical trials are needed so the systems can produce accurate results on women of all ages, ethnicities, and body types. Hey, there's good of AI right there. Good Good AI. It's not all scary. All right. (laughs) Here's the next story. Genealogist uses her research skills to get long lost love letters back to her family. For nearly 30 years, Dottie Kearney held on to letters she found in her Staten Island, New York home, hoping to one day reunite them with their rightful owners. She finally got the chance last year when she saw Chelsea Brown on television. Brown is a genealogist who combs through records and ancestry websites to find families and reunite them with lost heirlooms. The 18 letters Kearney discovered in 1995 were written during World War II by Claude Marston Smith, then serving in the U.S. Navy and his wife, Marie Bogle-Smith. Brown tracked down their daughter, Carolyn Bolin, who confirmed that Kearney's house was her childhood home. Her dad stored important items in the attic, she said, so it didn't surprise her that he kept the letters up there. Kearney told USA Today the missives revealed a precious love story and she didn't want to get rid of them. Bolin is grateful, calling the notes a treasure. That's cool. Can you imagine like finding those after all those years? That's It'd pretty be unbelievable. precious. Love It'd that. really be cool. Next one. The U.N. agrees on landmark treaty to protect marine life. The United Nations on Saturday agreed to a historic treaty to protect marine life and biodiversity in the world's oceans. The accord marks a long-awaited milestone in a years-long effort to safeguard the planet's seas, with the U.N. saying the new High Seas Treaty would place 30% of the world's oceans into protected areas, but more money into marine conservation and covers access to and use of marine genetic resources. Hmm. The treaty will put limits on how much fishing can take place, the routes of shipping lanes, and the exploration activities like deep-sea mining, BBC reports. The high seas, every area that lies 200 nautical miles beyond a nation's territorial waters, are often called the world's last true wilderness. CNN notes, and they make up more than 60% of the world's ocean. The 30% of the high seas that will now be covered is a major jump from prior legislation. All I got from that is I want to go to the ocean. I want to go to the ocean. 
Ooh, me too. I love the ocean. I, I would love to do that as well. All right, we got the final story of the week. Through non-invasive technology, scientists find a hidden corridor in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Okay, Ooh. this is really cool. I can't wait to hear this. Using non-invasive technology... A hidden corridor was discovered near the main entrance of the Great Pyramid of Giza, the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world still standing. The Scan Pyramids Project, launched in 2015, uses infrared thermography, 3D simulations, and cosmic ray imaging. Cosmic ray imaging is amazing. To get a different and safer look at the 4,500-year-old structure. Reuters reports, after using... Okay, I can't say this word. It's very scientific. One tomography to detect the corridor. Scientists fed a tiny endoscope through a joint in the pyramid stones and captured several images. They found that the unfinished corridor is 30 feet long and further research could help people understand how the pyramid was constructed. We're going to continue our scanning so we will see what we can do to figure out what we can find beneath it or just by the end of this corridor. This is from Mustafa Waziri, head of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities. He said it during a press conference last week. Okay, that's kind of cool. Like, it'd be neat to know what's going on inside of the the Pyramid of Giza. I would like to go there I would love to go into the pyramids. You've never been to the pyramids, have you? No, I've never been. You've seen them, right? No, never been there. Oh, yeah, that'd be so, so amazing. Well, uh, hey... Let us know, by the way, uh, if you know of a cupcake or cake place, preferably, <laughs> that I can visit. I would like to know that on our social media, at Common Good Talk. Let us know on Facebook. Well, we're so glad that you've been with us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.